Monday, June 19th, 2023. All roads lead to the Water Club, 500 East 30th Street, New York, New York, for the New York Association of Black Journalists second annual Juneteenth Gala and Awards Ceremony. This year's gala will be hosted by CBS News anchor and national correspondent Michelle Miller and today's show co-host and news anchor Craig Melvin. Come out and celebrate, enjoy, and support the NYABJ on this prestigious evening. Tickets are on sale now at nyabj.org. That's Monday, June 19th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Water Club. Tickets on sale now at nyabj.org. You're listening to The Sidebar by NYABJ, a show about the world of media through the lens of Black media makers. I'm Katherine Jones. When you see a woman covering sports in the field, thank her. Because when I tell you sis is going through a lot, especially Black women, just trying to show up in these spaces and to be taken seriously and to be valued, like just thank her and encourage her and speak life into her because it's not an easy road. And we love, those of us that cover women's sports in particular, we love it, we're passionate about it. So if you see value in it, in your next meeting, speak up you know, um, promote it, be, become an advocate. Um, you know, women are important. Our voices are important. Our thoughts are important. Our sports are important. So you just heard words by basketball host and analyst LaChina Robinson. She and soccer journalist Tamara Griffin know that giving voice to women's sports stories is not for the weak. From limited resources to lack of attention, professionals in women's sports media and marketing take on the mission of an underrated and underfunded beat. Robinson and Griffin join the sidebar by NYABJ to discuss their struggles and the moves they make to even the playing field for coverage of women's sports. Hi, my name is Tamara Griffin and I am a freelance journalist who covers women's soccer. Hey guys, it's Latrina Robinson, a women's basketball analyst and host for ESPN NBC and Sirius XM. What is the biggest misconception about being a woman in sports, whether it's from your, you know, men co-workers or it's from people aspiring to be in your place um and i would specifically say that um i would take this question and say a woman covering women's sports is that no one cares about what i'm doing right oh you're covering women's sports you know okay whatever right like it's it's some kind of charity like, oh, okay, you're covering women's sports. That's great. How awesome of you. No, this is this is a sport that deserves respect. You know, women's basketball is an incredible product. And it's almost as though this is my starting point. Like, again, what are you doing next? And I would just like to see everyone rethink the narrative around how you view women who are covering sports, how you view women's sports. Um, and for me, I would just like for people to see the value in the work that I'm doing and not look at it as, um, you know, something, some reason why I wasn't able to elevate to bigger sports or higher levels. No, I believe in this. I want to be here. And when you look at the trends, it's growing. And women's basketball is absolutely growing. So um, that would be my hope is that they would take those, you know, archaic misogynistic glasses off as it pertains to sport and really acknowledge what's happening. And that, you know, this is, this is the place to be for many of us. And it might be the place you want to be if you give it a chance. <laughs> so. 
So I know when I was applying to sports jobs, recruiters would have like this aha moment once they heard that it was my dad who got me into sports, right? Did you feel like you needed to have a male cosign to get jobs, to get your pitches taken seriously, things of the like? That's a really good question. I guess what I would say is women can't be as selective when it comes to choosing mentors or advocates in the workspace. The people who get you into the room have to be men because a majority of those in leadership are are men, in particular white men. So while I am always leaning on my sisters and you know women because they understand what it's like and the challenges we face in a male-dominated field, we have to have males that believe in what we're doing, that are willing to advocate, or else we don't we don't get into the room. So I don't know that it's that I ever felt I had to have a, a man to justify uh, me being in the, in the sports space. My dad was an influence on me when it came to sports, absolutely. But more than anything, I just felt like in order for me to get in the room, I had to have the belief and the buy-in of men. And I still believe that. I believe that um, you know because of the inequalities we see in CEO positions and board positions and just everywhere in leadership, um, you know, we absolutely have to to have men on our side to to get into those rooms, unfortunately. And going off this, would you say that sports media as a whole is still pretty much a boys club? It's still very much a boys club. Um, you know, we've got years and years and years of men playing sport and the normalcy, if you will, of men participating in sport. And then comes Title IX, and now it's like, oh, really? Girls and women play sport? And things have changed since Title IX, but but not enough. Uh, I still turn on the television and see, um, you know, mostly men calling games and covering uh, sporting events. Um, you know, I, I mostly hear male voices when I turn on talk radio or in the morning when I'm watching sports on television. We do have, we've made some strides. You know, there's, I think, been like a one percentage change in the amount of women's sports coverage. I think it's now 5% of all sports coverage is women. It used to be four. So very, very small, what I would say, I'm not going to say insignificant, but we just have a long ways to go. But in, until I turn on the television on the radio and the first voice I hear is a woman's voice, I'm, I'm going to say no, um, that not much has changed. Now, do you think that women have to report on men's sports to be able to have a successful career in sports media? Or is there an avenue for them to focus on women's sports and still have that, you know, fulfilling and successful career? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have definitely heard stories from women who've been in sports media much longer than me about the frustration of feeling as though they have to cover men's sports in order to get the visibility, to build the networks and contacts that they need to advance in their careers. Um, and on the one hand, I if, if there are women in sports media who exclusively want to cover men's sports, I am, you know, fully in support of that. I think I don't believe in people feeling that they need to silo themselves or or choose one path if that's not what they want to do. Um, but I do not support the fact that in order to become 
legitimized or or validated in sports media that women and, and folks who identify as women have to report on men's sports first or or exclusively. Um, that's not right because we're sending a message that women's sports are illegitimate. <laughs> um, and I think that message has been uh, subscribed to and perpetuated for way too long. I think it has been slowly changing. And I like to think that the changes that we're seeing now in all sorts of women's sports, soccer, hockey, basketball, um, tennis, lacrosse and field hockey, especially at the collegiate level, like they're getting more airtime on sports broadcast networks. They're getting um, more slowly resources on the media end um, to be covered, which is, it feels promising. Um, and they're getting momentum even outside of the US, which means that they can be international, you know? I feel like the next Olympics that we have is gonna be really revealing in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I've definitely seen that happen. Um, and the way that I feel about it is if that's their chosen path, if they want to be, you know, the best NBA broadcaster or NFL broadcaster or journalist and, you know, just write banger after banger of, you know, cover story for whatever their publication, like go forth. Um, but I don't want people to feel that that is a prerequisite to becoming um, recognized in the field because that's just gonna perpetuate the same sort of sexist um, notions that have been creating this imbalance um, in sports and definitely in sports coverage too. If you go to any like sports site or sports magazine, define the women's sports section as kind of like clicking a few tabs. It's not automatically, you know, in front of you. Yeah. Right? So like, how does that feel kind of, you know, working on these stories and do you feel like they're not, you know, going in, they're not going to be like, oh, on the front page, they're not going to be like right in front of people, you know, you have to, you know, your fans are going to have to search for it a bit. You really can't get discouraged. You have to know that you know that you know that these stories are worth telling. I'll give you a, a, an example of something I thought about recently. When you look at a lot of the major sports media awards, you don't see those awards going to a lot of people that cover women's sports. I would love to know the statistics over time. I have my own reason reasoning for that and nothing against, you know, the people that vote on these awards, but I, I just believe that that goes back to the lack of value, right? For the sport in general, people aren't watching. Therefore, they don't know who should be nominated for various awards or who should be getting recognitions and things like that. And it's like, in women's sports, you're never going to get the thank you. You're not going to get the award. You're not going to be on the cover of the magazine. You're not going to be on page one on the website. Like you have to know that those things don't define don't define your value, um, and that if you really believe in women's sports, you know your reward comes from telling the untold stories and trying to fight for that visibility and knowing that you're adding to the bookkeeping, the storytelling, the representation aspect of sport. And that has to feel good enough for you because, um, you know, unfortunately the recognition isn't, isn't going to come from other places. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to engage with the comments or the readers of your articles or just seeing 
who follows the outlets that you report for. But do you feel like there's a lot of engagement and a lot of interest in women's sports uh, through your readers and viewers and people who follow um, your news? Yes. And that is what make can make me feel sometimes like that person who was, you know, walking around in like a, a trench coat and a fedora who's like whispering like, you don't know about this thing, but it's about to blow up and you have no idea. Let me know if you want to get in on the ground floor. Whenever I talk to people who don't already follow women's soccer, I fear that I sound like that crazed, obsessive person because there is such a disparity between, and I guess this is maybe the case for a lot of sports that aren't considered mainstream, but I experience it most potently in women's soccer, of course, because that's what, what I cover. But the disparity between the passion and encyclopedic knowledge and dedication that women's soccer fans and others in the community, including the media practitioners like myself, have compared to the way it's discussed outside of that community is wild to me. Like women's soccer, we call it WOSO Twitter, women's soccer, like the WO from women and the WSO from soccer, WOSO. Women's soccer, WOSO Twitter is so active. And I appreciate that because I've been on Twitter forever, but I'm still relatively new to Woso Twitter. And those folks will hold you accountable, you know, which I love. And I, I embrace that as a journalist because especially as a freelancer, you know, I don't always have those channels for direct and immediate feedback. I mean, I have great relationships with my editors, but it's nice to also be able to engage with readers in that sort of way. I use Woso Twitter to do research, to, to get a sense of what matters to people, what stories aren't being told, what's being overlooked, um, because those things are always discussed. And it's it's been interesting the past few months as we've seen this Elon Musk takeover of Twitter and the degradation of the platform, which is very real and very like that's, that's happening, but it it hasn't really, to my knowledge, fundamentally affected Woso Twitter. Like people are still writing strong for it. And with the NWSL season starting, I fully expect, you know, people to be live tweeting and popping off and making memes before halftime of certain games and being like fully engaged. Um, and as one of the few black reporters who's covering women's soccer and and always looking for ways to cover black people in women's soccer on top of that um it's been really affirming and reassuring to see the the appetite that people have for those stories not only black folks but 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 all people from all backgrounds um because there are so many interesting things happening in in that niche within the beat um I sometimes feel like I can't even pitch the stories fast enough. Um, so I'm really grateful for that engagement. I'm grateful for the passion that people bring and the knowledge that they share, especially on social media. Um, I don't get emails really for, for my stories, at least not yet, um, but definitely lots of tweets and DMs and um, that level of engagement too. Most of the stories, most of the publications that I write for don't have super active comment sections. Um, like The Athletic, for example, I love their comment section because those people have to pay to subs subscribe to that platform. So they're, sometimes the comment sections of Athletic stories are 
almost just as good as the stories themselves because it feels like sitting in a Socratic seminar where everyone is just dissecting and, and adding on and analyzing and exchanging. Um, so none of the, I don't have comment sections like that for the, for the publications that I write for, but the community is so tight knit and so dedicated and honestly has been so starved for, for stories um, because publications aren't dedicating enough resources um, commensurate with the growth, especially right now. I think it's slowly changing. And of course there have been people doing this work for several years. I don't wanna overlook them, um, but they can only write so quickly, you know? Um, and we're getting to a point now where the stories are just overflowing. Um, and the I, it, I feel, not to sound corny, but it, it does feel like an honor to to be able to provide and, and contribute to that um, because what's happening right now is so exciting and it's just the beginning. So yeah, I, um, I'm grateful for every tweet and every retweet and every comment and every time someone shares the work. Um, it, it always has mattered to me as a journalist, but in this space in particular, it it really, it feels similar to when I was reporting abroad and I knew that folks in Kenya were sharing my stories with their friends and stuff. It's it's really like the highest compliment, I think. Zola China, tell me about some of the challenges you faced, whether it be for your podcast or some of the analysis you do on television. Um, in terms of, you know, maybe finding research, archival material, or like room in the budget to do the stories you want to do on women's sports. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Woo, KJ, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> so one thing I always say is that when you're covering women's sport, you're doing so much more than just your job, right? Like I wish I could show up and just be a basketball analyst, but the truth is that uh, I am usually the person on in, in most spaces I work in that is most passionate about women's sports, most knowledgeable about women's basketball. Uh, so I then become an educator in a, in a bit of an, an advocate, like, hey, guys, we need to treat this game like you would the men's side, right? So there's that part. And then to your point about the archives and the history, because women's sports has gone so undervalued, there's been years and years and years of stories that we've missed. Um, significant people in the history of sport that have disappeared. Um, that you know, the, whose stories need to be told because we simply haven't dedicated the resources um, or the energy towards making that important, towards the record, the record keeping and. Um, you know, I can remember when I first got into to covering women's basketball, just simple things like statistical history and, um, you know, my ability to even be able to watch games. Now, digital has helped every sport. Don't get me wrong. So some of this technology has helped. But there were many times when I was building my brand early in my career where if I wasn't tweeting because I am at the game, there is no one else talking about this game because there's no one there right? There's no television, there's no radio. Me and the people in the stands are the only ones that are archiving these moments in history. And so, um, and, and that's a game that I'm not calling, obviously, the game that I was just attending. So <laughs> we have so many gaps in, in how we have um, kept record of, of women's sports in particular. I, I obviously cover women's basketball. And um, it's hurt our coverage. It really has. Um, and it, it's gotten a little better. Again, 
digital has helped. There has been some increase in investment. There's, you know, there's, there's been an uptick, but trying to cover women's sport and having to dig, 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 dig for everything is, is wild. And then the other part of it is you're, you're then become the person that markets the sport as well, because you're not seeing the billboard of the big games and you're not turning on again, your television, your radio and hearing the big matchup is happening tonight. So it's me literally on Twitter, like, Hey guys, don't forget this game is coming on or it's the players who are now using their social media platforms so well. And that's helped the sport to grow too saying, Hey, you know, we got this big matchup or, you know, there's, there's a few, there's a, actually there's a lot more grassroots media now that's helping to spread the word about women's basketball, but it was our job to market on top of being an analyst on top of being an advocate on top of trying to record stories on top of having to dig so far in research to even find information. So, whoo, I know that's a lot, but, um, and I, and I, and I am honored and, and privileged to, to cover the sport that I love, but it's also been much harder than it, it should have been. So with all these challenges, is it worth it for media organizations to hire people specifically to cover women's sports? That's another aspect of sports media for, for women's sports that people don't realize is a lot of folks that are covering women's sports have a full-time job and are doing this on the side because there aren't, um, you know, full-time positions in, in, in most places in media for women's sports, or they're creating their own platform just so they can cover it uh, because there, there are not a lot of job opportunities there. Well, I do understand the need to you know, hire those people in particular that have been doing this and care about it. I also believe that everyone should be invested in women's sports and should be covering it and should be interested in it. And that, you know, it shouldn't just be this, this one-off thing in the corner or someone you hire specifically for women's sport. It should be a part of your everyday business. So Tamara, I know you've written about this, like how hard it is to access women's soccer games and you know being able to find them these aren't on television you kind of have to dig for them so what is your advice to those looking to cover soccer and women's sports and having to find these games and having to see these games to be able to cover them yeah that's the bane of my existence and i know it's the bane of many in the this women's soccer community all over the world um i mean the number one thing i would suggest is to to do your research it's a job finding out how and where to watch certain games especially those outside of the us is a job in itself i'm not gonna lie um and i hate that a lot of people who follow men's sports don't have to do quite this level of of work <laughs> although with with men's soccer in the us it does also require similar levels of work but but it does require a, a fair amount of labor just to find out where and how to watch the game before you even start covering it literally i mean yesterday just yesterday i wanted to watch a english a, a, a women's super league, which is like the women's version of the English premier league, not to put in the, in those kind of reductive terms, but it's England's English women's professional soccer. Um, it wasn't a league game. It was like the, the quarterfinals of one of their tournament cup games, which meant I wasn't sure if it was going to be 
um, streaming on the typical streaming platform that I use for league games. And it probably took me like 10, 15 minutes to confirm that I would be able to, <laughs> to watch it on the platform that I ended up streaming it on. And that honestly is par for the course um, for, for a women's soccer fan, for a women's soccer writer who wants to make sure that they're covering um, or at least watching as many games as they can takes a lot of research. There's a lot of um, how to watch and then insert the name of the game online or like insert the name of the game streaming like Google searches <laughs> that that are required. Um, you, you have to be dedicated to it. And unfortunately, that dedication can also require a financial investment because for men's and women's soccer, honestly, if you want to follow the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League in the U.S., and if you want to follow the Women's Super League, that English professional women's league that I mentioned, and if you want to follow the Bundesliga and Serie A Femenil and um, uh, Liga uh, MX Femenil, which is the Mexican Women's Professional League, between just those five, which, by the way, are not like the total five, you might need to be subscribed to as many as like three or four different streaming platforms from like Fubo to ESPN, which maybe is Hulu and maybe isn't. You might need to have like an ESPN plus add-on, which is like $7 a month. So it can be quite costly. And because I'm freelance, I don't get the benefit of, you know, I don't work full time for ESPN where I imagine, though I'm not certain, but I would imagine um, that a lot of those employees can they get you know the full ESPN package just as part of their employment because it's part of their job to be able to follow games. Um, I don't have that benefit as a freelancer, so I am footing the costs of those things. Um, and I hate that access hinges so heavily on on that. I mean, it would be one thing if you could just subscribe to one streaming platform that gave you access to every. Uh, I mean, just saying this out loud sounds like a a dream. <laughs> um, if you could subscribe to one platform that would give you access to every women's professional league in the world, that would be one thing, you know, but you have to know which broadcasters are airing and streaming, which leagues for what seasons and all of these things are constantly in flux because the women's game is growing which means it's becoming more profitable which means yes there is more competition between broadcasters and streaming platforms to get these games but contracts from the 2023 season might look totally different in 2024 and you have to be able to follow those things honestly i think that maybe this is the, the second tip is to consider your access as almost part of your job to like stay on top of who's getting the 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 broadcast rights and who's signing the deals um, because that's going to determine which streaming platforms you unfortunately will have to pay for. And hearing this to me is wild because like I read that soccer is the most, if not the most, the one of the most popular sports among women. So what do you say to you know media organizations who don't want to budget their time and their money to providing these stories to readers? Um, and how do you think that these media organizations can better serve you as a journalist and readers who obviously care about soccer? Um, the first thing I'd say to them is you're missing out. <laughs> I think for a long time, I mean, soccer has had such a tough time in, in America. I was literally just talking to my mom about this 
because unlike American football, you know, the NFL, where each play lasts, what, like six seconds and a game that technically is only supposed to be an hour, right? Because there's four 15 minute quarters ends up lasting what, like three and a half, almost four, because there are so many pauses and so many commercials and such long half times and you have two minute warning and all of these other moments for breaks, for advertising and for people to, you know, redirect their attention elsewhere. Soccer doesn't have that. Soccer requires you to sit for 45 minutes and then you get a 15 minute break and then you sit for another 45 and then you're done. And between that and the way that scoring happens and how it's not like basketball where there's constant, you know, points being scored. It's not like football where technically they're not even scoring that many points on average per game. But for some reason, they've assigned this arbitrary six points, three points, one point, two points so that you can get to these higher quantities of number. Soccer doesn't have any of that. So already it doesn't really fit into the American cultural context of like short attention spans and always being on the lookout for ways to make money via advertising, you know, then you combine that with um, gendered notions of who can play a sport, who can be a professional athlete. Most of those things are, are those spaces are assumed to be reserved almost exclusively for the longest time for men and people who identify as men. So when you combine those two things and you have women who are playing a sport that already doesn't fit well into the sort of like American landscape of consumption of entertainment, it's like double marginalization, you know, not too different from what black women face being marginalized both by race and gender, just two different forces working there for women's soccer. So already There's, there's a really high bar that you have to clear in terms of writing stories, but it just has to change. And I think that I would give newsrooms similar advice to what I shared earlier about people who want to cover the World Cup is I would encourage people to think more expansively about how you can cover women's soccer. I know there was, I definitely saw, and it's funny because as a freelancer, I've done research, you know, Um, I have a whole spreadsheet of publications that I would be interested in writing for, and I'll go and do research and see if they've covered women's soccer in the past few years, and if they have, in what ways they were covering it. And I noticed that a lot of fashion magazines, you know, the Vogue's and the L's and the Mary Claire's and all of those, Harper's Bazaar, when they have covered women's soccer in the past, it was usually um, about the equal pay fight which is super worthwhile, but also touches on issues of gender equity, obviously pay equity, um, and could appeal to a reader who maybe doesn't follow soccer that closely. Maybe they only watch the World Cup and the Olympics, maybe a little bit, one or two games here and there outside of that, but who are interested in gender equity. And that's just one intersection, you know, that soccer has with other topics. Like I said, there are plenty of, I don't want to give away too many of my story ideas, but there are plenty of stories that could be written at the intersection of soccer and music, for example. FC Barcelona has a deal with Spotify, you know, and they have like a whole playlist thing that they do. Um, A lot of uh, musical artists will reference certain soccer players in their music. A lot of soccer players are, you know, they 
they're inspired by by like rappers and and other musical artists like they're so soccer jerseys right now are so hot i have so many conversations with friends about how soccer jerseys are becoming their own fashion piece because unlike basketball baseball the nfl hockey a soccer jersey is the closest that you get to like the silhouette of a t-shirt and we all wear t-shirts which means most of us can wear soccer jerseys and a lot of these clubs are dedicating more resources to coming up with these really dope creative cutting edge chic fashionable soccer jerseys that i mean i wear soccer jerseys to the club almost exclusively now because they're comfortable they're vibrant, they make a statement. And the number of times I've been stopped at the club by someone who's a fan of the jersey that I'm wearing or is just so shocked to see, you know, uh, what like their team shown in the club like that is wild, you know? And that's starting to become more normalized too. And those are stories that can be written about. So I would encourage editors to be a little bit more creative and and know and understand that there are so many ways to write about women's soccer outside of what's happening on the pitch. But even if you just want to stick with that, that's a worthwhile territory too, because women are balling right now. They always have been, but it's only getting better. It's only getting more exciting. They are saucy and bold and strong and bombastic and they have egos and there's like shit talking. I wish there was a little bit more shit talking to be honest, but these games are just as exciting as any men's game right now. Um, and I think the sooner that editors and other, you know, people who are making these big decisions in newsrooms can understand that, um, the more creative and, um, nuanced their, their own coverage could be. And it's fine if people only want to care about women's soccer every four years during the world cup, or maybe, you know, every four years for the world cup and then another every four years for the summer Olympics, that's fine. But eventually Woso fans, as I mentioned, who are super dedicated, will start to notice, you know, that selective attention. And if you want to grow a dedicated reader base, you got to start creating your own receipts, which means following these leagues throughout their seasons and dedicating space in your publications, especially if you're a digital publication, because it's not like you have to worry about inches on a newspaper page, you know? You have infinite space on the internet. And I know that you don't have infinite resources. I know the media industry has always been at a loss at working from a, a place of um, deficiency when it comes to money, um, but there are ways, you know? And if you are able to figure out ways to, to cover men's sports that are way more obscure and less popular than soccer, then you definitely, you you can figure it out, you know? Nella China, is it worth it for media organizations to put their time and energy into women's sports coverage? And how can they better amplify spaces to accommodate such coverage? Something I talk about often is when it comes to your investment in women's sports as a media entity, it's what comes first, the chicken or the egg. You know, you can easily say, well, we're not getting the same return that we are in men's or we're not going to get the clicks or the interest. But it's like, but are you putting this? The same amount of resources into covering it like let's see what happens when you actually give it the attention it deserves and then see what the return is rather than oh we're not going to get any return so we're just not going to do it um it's absolutely worth it and if you watch women's basketball over time the product is amazing 
Um, and, and that's where I would say I feel like the most growth is coming from is people are realizing that women's basketball is, is actually a really awesome sport, right? There's a number of things you can point to as to why we're seeing some uptick in investment, but much of it has to do with the product itself and the stories and the amazing women athletes. So um, it's absolutely worth it. And, and to me, what's going to move the needle in women's sports coverage is more people who are in leadership positions saying, hey, we're going to designate someone to go and cover the WNBA. We're going to designate someone to go out and cover women's basketball. We're not going to just pay attention to these sports when something major happens. Brittany Griner is, is unlawfully detained in Russia. Okay, let's talk about that. Uh, rather than getting into the everyday of women's basketball, which it deserves. So um, absolutely worth it. So according to the Institute of Diversity and Ethics in Sport, only 1.1% of all sports reporters are black women. So I would love to know what are your reactions to hearing this 1.1%? My reaction to that number is that's tragic. Um, it's very disappointing to hear for a number of reasons. Number one is black women matter. Um, and black women love sports. And I think sometimes we are, or all the time, we are erased from various aspects of society as a whole, not even in just sport, but black women are lacking in visibility in representation in equal pay. Just so many places we're told, um, you don't have a voice, you don't have a place, you don't matter. And, um, you know, for me, someone who loves sport, being a black woman to know that, we're such a small part of the voice of sport is disappointing. Um, and quite honestly, you know, when you look at the playing field, the court, various aspects athletically of, of sport, there are black women everywhere. Like where would sport be without black women? Um, Althea Gibson, you know, going all the way back, the WNBA. Um, so if, we're good enough to play sport. Why aren't we good enough to cover sport? And it has been a major part of, of my career goal and purpose to try to create space for black women to cover sport. Obviously I'm not the first, so many trailblazers have come before me, but it's important to me to um, create opportunities and spaces for our voices to be heard and to be valued, but very, very disappointed in that number. I think a lot of Black folks in general, and, and again, people from marginalized identities, are not given the space to report on their own communities without the, the suspicion of an inability to be objective at the same time, which is super insulting as a journalist, right? And it's not something, it's not a suspicion or a skepticism that a lot of white people have to deal with no matter what they're reporting on. I feel like a lot of times when, sorry, this is a roundabout way of answering your question. <laughs> um, but these are also the reasons why more black women need to be in sports media. I think that sometimes when black women pitch stories, if they're not pitching to a black editor, it can be really hard to prove that that it's a story and not just a personal interest. I think that there's an assumption or an expectation that we cannot be both objective and professional and tell stories about ourselves. And I think more often than not, white people are given the space to do that. 
But what ends up happening is those stories don't get told or those stories get told really, really late. I know, for example, that Black women have been, Black women in sports media have been noticing the way Black female athletes have been engaging with all of these incredible aesthetics around beauty and hair and skincare and lashes and nails and showing up to games looking all beat and and then and then balling out you know we're seeing it right now in march madness you know i think that there are few people who are better at trend forecasting than black women and again it's because of the intersectionality of the oppressions that we face um so if newsrooms that are not predominantly black or not predominantly woman want to be ahead of the curve i think that they need to start hiring more black women and listening to black women and paying them what they deserve and letting them tell the stories that that they've been wanting to tell there is not enough of us telling our own stories speaking of stories is there any story over the years that really stuck with you that really um, left an impact on you and an impact on women's basketball as a whole, LaChina? One of one of the stories that has stuck with me over time is um, a story about Tamika Catchings. Tamika Catchings, who's a five-time Defensive Player of the Year and WNBA champion, played at Tennessee for Lady Vols for Pat Summit, uh, has, I believe, moderate to severe hearing loss. And this is something that not very many people knew until uh, later in her career. Like there were some that were either close to the Lady Vol program or followed that particular school. But this story was not told on the level which it should have been for many, many years. And just to see how that impacted many people who have disabilities, who have were lacking, you know, confidence or awareness even that they could be an athlete at a higher level with a disability. It was just so impactful and I'm thinking to myself how could a story like this be buried for for this long I mean it, it obviously again it, it it impacts what's happening on the court but also the resilience the um determination of Tamika to overcome um you know this this disability to become this all-american and this MVP was just incredible um and so after really studying and getting into that story, I just recommitted to learning about who these women are and how the things in their lives have impacted their journeys and how they have, in a sense, gotten them to where they are. What about you, Tamara? Uh, tell me about your work at Anscape. What has been the story that you are most proud of so far? One that I'm really proud of, I wrote last October. Um, and it was after the first investigation into the NWSL came out, the, the Sally Yates report, former Attorney General Sally Yates, there were instances of sexual abuse and harassment and racial abuse and microaggressions and retaliations um, that had been heavily, heavily covered across women's soccer media. And I wrote about that too. Um, but I specifically pulled the thread and, or like looked at it through the lens of what happens when black players specifically are not being listened to. So I folded in a lot of the research that's been done around racial and gender inequity in more traditionally professional workplaces. And I, I applied that lens to what's been going on in, um, in professional women's soccer and 
that's a, that's one that I'm really proud of. And then um, I've been working on a series mm-hmm. about black head coaches in women's soccer. Um, I've been working on that for the past like five, six months. So March Madness just wrapped up. The WNBA draft is around the corner and down the line is the WNBA finals. So what advice, LaChina, do you have for media and marketing professionals who are looking to pitch these stories to their editors and their supervisors and their producers and, you know, needing to be able to show how important these stories are and how they deserve attention? I would just point to the numbers. The metrics tell the story of the growth of women's basketball. I mean, not only in revenue generation, but in viewership, in you know social media interactions. Um, there's so many. There's so many places where you can pinpoint the growth of this sport, um, including again just the on-court product itself. And so I think it's important for you to just be prepared to talk about the the numbers of it. But at the same time, um, it's almost in some ways, like getting someone to buy into a company, right? This is where we see it going in five years, in 10 years. If we invest in this now, this is what the return could be down the line. Um, And so really just having a vision and understanding of where the WNBA is headed, because again, the numbers tell the story um, and, and pitching from that standpoint, but also illustrating the amazingness of the athletes themselves right like you if you did a profile on asia wilson and took that you know as your pitch who wouldn't want to invest in in asia wilson right like incredible an incredible athlete a champion a, a gold medalist but funny charismatic just you know so interesting as a person great background story um you know stands for social causes she believes in talks about uh, why black women matter and is open about her battles with mental health. Like she can meet the world at so many different intersections that there is an audience. And that is the overall conversation I think that needs to be had is that there is an audience that's very hungry for more visible women athletes. That's very hungry for representation in sport that um, is ready to consume that content uh, as it's created and so those are a couple of things that I would definitely take in. But starting with, if you just look at the product, it's growing, right? Like year over year in all the different metrics that I mentioned and even more, um, and even investments. You look at the WNBA and what they've been able to do investment-wise with different companies and organizations, you know, the Googles of the world, the AT&Ts, follow the money. There's a reason why uh, these entities are, are, are investing in the WNBA. So the Women's World Cup is in this summer and the National Women's Soccer League's regular season just started. So what advice do you have for media and marketing professionals looking to make pitches about these big news uh, stories in women's soccer, Tamara? There are so many areas of life that soccer intersects with um, that can lead to stories that don't have anything to do with, you know, bicycle kicks or VAR or overtime, you know? Um, And so I would also encourage people to think really expansively about what it means to tell a soccer story. A lot of these can happen before the very first game even of the World Cup because they're happening right now, they're happening all around us every day. You can report on soccer at the intersection with other topics too. So one of the things that I love about reporting on soccer is that I can tell soccer stories and tell stories about 
you know, the economy. I can report on soccer while also telling stories about gender or race. I can report on soccer while also telling stories about the environment and climate change because that affects when and how teams can play games, you know, and our climate is rapidly changing right now, which means people are starting to have conversations that they've never had to have around how and when to schedule games. Some games are getting canceled because the fields are literally frozen, solid, and that becomes dangerous to players' health. Now, these pitches being um, something on women's sports, is there anything that you have to do differently um, to get these pitches, you know, to the top of the pile? or you know to have them compete with pitches on men's sports and men's stories here i am developing pitches like i'm a, like i'm in marketing just to try to draw this illustration that's so clear that hey we need to do more for our women's sports product and even organizations that have been a part of it's not just hey we need to start covering women's sports it's like how can we do more right how can we raise the bar um so you're just constantly having those conversations okay we got a show now how many shows do we have um, can we can we do more profiles? Can we? So I have found another level of um, of uh, I guess skill in in myself in in being able to uh, market and to your point pitch. But it's just different. Like it, with men's stories, you know, you'll get a yes really quickly. And women's, you have to give reasons, and that's the biggest the biggest difference. So thank you so much to Tamara Griffin and Lachina Robinson for joining the sidebar by NYABJ. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm really grateful to have been invited and this was a great conversation. Thanks, KJ. I used to be a member of NYABJ when I when I was living awesome. in New York. So it's it's a nice full circle moment <laughs> to contribute in this way. The Sidebar is a production of the Greater New York Chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. The opinions heard in this episode belong to the individuals who expressed them, and not to NYABJ. The music in our show theme is by Halls and the Raps, and I'm Katherine Jones. Subscribe now to join us for more conversations and industry insights, straight from the source. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of The Sidebar. On Monday, June 19th, 2023, the NYABJ proudly presents our second annual Juneteenth Gala and Awards Ceremony at The Water Club, located at 500 East 30th Street, Manhattan, New York. Won't you come and enjoy a memorable evening of good food and fabulous company? Hosted by today's show co-host and news anchor Craig Melvin and by CBS news anchor and national correspondent Michelle Miller. Tickets available now at nyabj.org. That's Monday, June 19th, 6 to 9 p.m. at The Water Club, Go to nyabj.org to get your tickets now.